He survives. It's okay. <laughs> now, in that classic piece of American cinema, The Three Amigos, which is a personal favorite. I don't know about you, but the beleaguered townsfolk of Santa Poco need help. They are being bullied and harassed by a gang of thugs led by the infamous El Guapo. In desperation, the people of Santa Poco look for assistance. They call upon a trio of movie actors called the Three Amigos, who look like real heroes to these simple-minded townsfolk. Desperate for work, Dusty, Ned, and Lucky arrive to Santa Poco thinking they are performing in some sort of theatrical piece, only when staring into the eyes of El Guapo and his plethora of armed gunmen do they realize they've made a terrible mistake. The people of Santa Poco realize that they have also made a terrible mistake. They've pledged all their money to a trio of bumbling idiots who cannot save them from their tormentor. Their town is now doomed more than ever. If this gives you any indication of how my mind works, I thought of the three amigos while studying our passage from Isaiah for the morning. <laughs> you see, the book of Isaiah describes a similar story as that of the three amigos. Bear with me. God's people, the nation of Judah, were being bullied by a larger nation, Assyria. They needed help. So in desperation, they send for the three amigos. In this case, they send for the nation of Egypt. It turns out to be a very bad decision, though. Egypt is even less impressive than Dusty, Ned, and Lucky are. Assyria, as it turns out, is not deterred. But seeking help from unreliable allies, instead of trusting God to take care of us, is a mistake we all make. So whether we're talking about the people of Santa Poco or the people of ancient Judah, or you or I, we all have a lot to learn from this passage in the book of Isaiah this morning. As you might know, we are studying Isaiah here at Rooftop in an extended study for about 10 months. The book of Isaiah is a big book in the Old Testament written about seven centuries before Jesus. And it's such a big and complicated book that we've broken it up into themes or sub-series. And during our first sub-series that I'm calling National Disaster, we're looking at some of the sins that the nation of Judah commits. Now, the nation of Judah committed many sins deserving of God's wrath, idolatry, uh, immorality, false religion. And this morning, we're going to look at another sin, uh, making unwise partnerships with unreliable allies. So let me share with you two passages that we're going to look at this morning. The first comes from Isaiah chapter 30, which is uh, somewhat long. And the second comes from Isaiah chapter 31, which is also somewhat long. It's actually a little bit shorter. So, so Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in zone and their envoys have arrived in Haines. Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev, 
through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes. The envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away to your left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Now let's pick back up at chapter 31 for just a few verses. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, let me give you some, some contextual background, as I alluded to earlier. The nation of Judah, the people to whom this poetry is written, are the people of God. Uh, they were brought out of slavery from Egypt by Moses and God and uh, resettled in the land of Canaan, land flowing of milk and honey, and called by God to live holy lives. They were called to be a blessing to the nations and a light to the world. And they did that for a while, but they slowly lost their way. They gave into immorality and idolatry. They lost territory. They became just another small little pagan nation state. So speaking in terms of our cinematic metaphor here, the three amigos, Judah is now the beleaguered, oppressed people of Santa Poco. Now, while Judah has lost its power and reputation, other nations have ascended. One of them is the nation of Assyria. Now, at this point in history, Assyria is terrorizing and assimilating all the surrounding peoples, including Judah. They are demanding and violent, taking whatever they want. That makes Assyria our El Guapo. Now, feeling the heat... The leaders of Judah look for allies. They look for other nations that they can band together with so that they can ward off the Assyrian threat. There aren't a lot of real allies left, though. Really, only Egypt remains. They've all been gobbled up. So Egypt becomes then the Three Amigos, the only one that they can help. Now, in the movie, the Three Amigos were once a powerful movie franchise until audiences stopped coming to see them. Similarly, Egypt uh, once used to rule the region, but not anymore. They've lost their power. They are a weak little has-been nation-state. Something is better than nothing, Judah thinks, so Judah sends down truckloads of money to Egypt to form a partnership. Hopefully, Assyria will think twice before taking on the combined forces of little Judah and little Egypt. So that's what's going on in the passage. Judah has made a deal with the three amigos of Egypt to protect themselves against the El Guapo of Assyria. Now, that makes sense. If you are a suffering citizen... Of, the, of Santa Poco, it might be what you would do. 
But here in this passage, God does not commend them for this decision. God laments it. And he sends the prophet Isaiah to them to tell them that this is a really bad decision. Like a really bad decision. In fact, we read that in the opening verses. He writes, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade, uh, shade for refuge. Now, what's the problem here? Why is forming a political and military alliance with another nation in defense against a more powerful nation such a bad idea? That's what this passage is all about. Here we learn why God thinks this is such a bad idea. First, they didn't consult God. Isaiah writes that they go down to Egypt without consulting me. Now, an alliance with Egypt might have been a good idea. It might not have been a good idea. They just go ahead and do it according to their own understanding of the situation, though. They don't talk to God to discuss the pros, the cons, the risks, the rewards. They just kind of do it without consulting. Also, They disobeyed God and returned to Egypt. You might remember that God's people, Judah, has had a long relationship with Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years, Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. God used Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. But God knows also that Egypt would always be a temptation to his people. While they were slaves in Egypt, they actually lived somewhat comfortably. They ate fairly well. And when things got hard, God would know, God knew that they were going to be tempted to return to Egypt, to to feel the temptation, which is why he tells them explicitly elsewhere in the Bible, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go the way of Egypt again. You don't want Egypt. You don't need Egypt. Egypt is bad. Egypt enslaved you for 400 years, remember? But here they are again, looking for Pharaoh's protection, for Egypt's shade for refuge. This is a mistake I warned you about, God says. Egypt has never been your friend. What else is wrong with this decision? Thirdly, they trusted men and horses, not God. For centuries, God, through the prophets, had been telling his people that if, we, if they relied on him, if they lived lives of righteousness, he'd protect them from the El Guapos of the world. And he did, sometimes in miraculous fashion. But since they had forgotten about God and his power, they thought their security could be found in the number of horses and the number of chariots that they had lined up. And God reminds them that that's just not how it works. The size of your army just doesn't matter. What matters is God's protection for you. As he writes, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Besides which, Egypt wasn't even that impressive. Like I said, it was once a great nation, but now it was comparatively weak. Why make a deal with a weak ally who can do nothing for you? In a stinging bit of ad hominem, Isaiah calls Egypt that unprofitable nation whose help is useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab's an ancient alternate name for Egypt. Egypt is just a do-nothing nation. They are going to do nothing for you, he says. They are Rahab the do-nothing. So this alliance is a mistake. It's a big one. And Isaiah prophesies that it will utterly fail. As he writes in verse 16, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. 
You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away to your left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Basically, you're doomed. Assyria is swifter than you. Assyria is stronger than you. A thousand of you will fly at the threat of one Assyrian. Judah will be left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. The picture here is of a disappearing army, an army that had to disappear because they were so scared so quickly that they didn't even have time to grab their flag from the hill. That's what what would be left of you once Egypt abandons you and Assyria arrives. So that's the passage. Now, let's talk some application. So what? So what for us? Well, on the surface of it, maybe not much. We are not in the business of forming military alliances. But there is a principle embedded in this passage that applies to us a great deal. You see, behind every passage of Scripture, even very complex ones, There is a truth that God really wants us to understand and apply to our lives. And in this case, that truth is simple and important. I'm going to say it as simply as I can so that we can remember it. The principle, the truth here that I think God wants us to understand is this. Reliance over alliance. Reliance over alliance. You see, Judah's mistake here was allying with others to receive what God wanted them to rely on himself to provide. God had proven himself reliable to care for their needs, but instead of choosing to rely on God's reliability, they choose alliance with their historic enemies, and they suffer for it. Their nation was attacked by the Assyrians, Egypt proved no help, and eventually they succumbed to the power of their enemies. Their allies proved unreliable. But we make this mistake too. We choose unholy alliances over reliance on God all the time. And we do this because we're scared, like Judah. We do this because we feel threatened, like Judah. We do this because we crave worldly power, like Judah. But these are unholy alliances, and they cannot protect us, but we make them anyway. Let's get specific, though. What am I talking about? Well, I can think of three unholy alliances that we make for our own security, and I want to discuss them with you this morning. We'll call them the three amigos of unholy alliances, Dusty, Ned, and Lucky. And yes, for your listening pleasure, they all start with the same letter. So, three unholy alliances that we all make in life, instead of relying on God. First, we forge unholy alliances with Politicians. We forge unholy alliances with politicians. We will call this amigo Lucky Day. Christians feel threatened these days. Our world is changing. We are no longer a social or religious majority, and there are people in the world who don't like us. We are worried, for right or wrong, about our religious freedoms. We are worried that we've lost our political and social power. Many in the media seem like they are against us and our beliefs. It seems like Assyria is on the move against us. So what do we do? We go looking for Egypt. 
who go looking for Egypt. By Egypt, I mean politicians who offer to protect us. Christians have gotten into bed with politicians and on both sides of the political spectrum. Black and mainline Christians have gotten into bed with the Democratic Party. White evangelical Christians have gotten into bed with the Republican Party. We think that making alliances with politicians will protect us and our interests, but in this, we are seriously wrong. We're just letting ourselves be a pawn in a political game gone very badly. David Kuo would testify to this. Kuo was the director of President George W. Bush's Office of Faith-Based Initiatives in the 2000s. The office was created to support religious organizations that were doing good work in the community. Uh, President Bush, an evangelical Christian, started the office, uh, promised to create the office in gratitude for the overwhelming support that he received from evangelical Christians who voted him into office. So Kuo worked in the White House to lead the office, but he faced an uphill battle from the beginning. He found that on the outside, politicians talked earnestly about caring for Christians and sharing our interests. They're politicians. They can be very persuasive. But behind closed doors, they undermined the effort. Their goal was not to serve Christians or even people, but to protect their own political power. This was the Bush administration, too, one of the most Christian administrations in decades. But those leaders, nonetheless, could not have been more duplicitous or insincere. They took Christians for granted. They lied to religious leaders to get their support. They promised money and access and then cut it off. Seeing how fake the support was and how pointless the office was, David Kuo resigned and wrote this book, Tempting Faith. And it's a tell-all to warn Christians not to make that mistake again. In 2006, he wrote this book to warn believers not to let themselves be hoodwinked again by so-called Christian politicians who only pretend to care for us and our interests. And yet, 14 years later, here we are. It seems we made the mistake again. I speak for myself here. I respect people who disagree. But when politicians tell you that they have our interests at heart, history would suggest that we be deeply, deeply skeptical. Many politicians start out sincere and well-meaning, but in order to retain their power, they need votes, they need money, so they tell us what we want to hear. And we listen again and again and again. We listen and we vote without learning. We are Judah, they are Egypt, they are Rahab, the do-nothing. They lead our country and they deserve our support, but not uncritically or blindly. And we must be absolutely clear-eyed that they cannot provide for us the contentment and the salvation that we truly seek we forge unholy alliances with politicians. That's the first amigo. That's lucky day. Second, we forge unholy alliances with people. Politicians and people. This is dusty bottoms. See, a lot of times, we put people in the place of God. And instead of relying on people or on God, we rely on people. And I'm not saying we don't need people. I'm not saying we don't need friends. Everybody needs friends. Everybody needs people. But we don't need people as much as we need God. And sometimes people can be a distraction from only what God can provide for us. One of the psychological words used to describe this is a word that you're probably familiar with. It's the word codependence. Codependence is a relational condition in which two people need each other too much. They're so close that they really don't know where one of them ends and the other begins. 
I've had codependent relationships over the years. They're terrible. I had a therapist several years ago that I would meet with every week. I was practically addicted to him. I would see him every week. I got to the point that I was afraid of making a decision without talking to my therapist. Something would happen in my life. I'm like, oh my God, I need, I need to talk to my therapist like immediately. And I realized my dependency was getting too great. He'd become my Egypt. And don't get me wrong, he gave me great advice, but it was just one man's advice. And I didn't need my counselor as much as I needed to know God's wisdom for my life. So I had a breakup meeting with my therapist. We had a breakup meeting. I said all the things you say in a breakup. I said, it's, it's, it's not you, it's me. We can still be friends. You'll always have a special place in my heart. We cried, it was fun. M- many of us are enmeshed in codependent relationships. Relationships with friends, with family members, with spouses, with children, with social media. A lot of us have codependent relationships with social media. People who aren't good for us, people who do nothing, do nothing spouses, do nothing children, do nothing boyfriends, do nothing Facebook. Why do we hook up with these people? Because of Assyria. We're terrified of being alone. Being alone is our enemy. It's our Assyria. So we partner up with someone who's maybe not that great for us. That person becomes our Egypt. And these relationships can get pretty bad. One of the downsides of a codependent relationship is that when they go down, you go down with them. You're incapable of being happy on your own. I see this in marriage all the time, in marriages. It's easy for marriages to become codependent. And it makes a certain amount of sense that two people would care so greatly for each other. But the healthiest marriages aren't codependent. The healthiest marriages are interdependent, which is fundamentally different Besides which, what happens if your spouse dies? What happens if they leave you? Your spouse is not your God. As much as you love your spouse, you need God more. Honestly, that's why a lot of us get into unhealthy codependent relationships. We get into these relationships because we have not found ourselves fully in God. People who walk in faith and trust in God are much less relationally needy. The best thing that you can do for your marriage or that friendship that you care so much about is to depend on God more than you depend on them. Here's something important that I really want you to understand. You might not have been listening this morning. I might have just been politely pretending to listen, but I would really encourage you to listen for at least the next 15 minutes. Here might be the most important thing I say all morning. It's this. You will never be truly happy in a relationship until you learn to be content in God alone. You will never be truly happy in any relationship until you find a way to be content in God alone. We forge unholy alliances with politicians, with people. Third, we make unholy alliances with the powers. That's Amigo 3. Ned Niederlander. By powers... I mean spiritual powers, namely the devil, Satan. A lot of us in this room are in active alliance with the devil right now. You see, relying on God to provide for us through righteousness is difficult. Relying on God takes patience and prayer. 
Just like God promised to take care of Judah if they relied on him, God promises to take care of us if we rely on him. But that takes patience and obedience. We don't want to be patient. We don't want to be obedient. Uh, Patience and obedience are the enemy. They're the Assyria. So the devil comes along as our ally to offer us a way out of how to be patient or obedient. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. God promised to care for Adam and Eve if they trusted him. But the devil convinced them that they were missing out on something and that they should partner with him instead. So they ate the fruit. And in the end, they were cursed, banished from the garden. The devil proved as unreliable a partner as Egypt was. He he was Satan the do-nothing. But we all partner with the devil instead of trusting in God. How so? In a plethora of ways. Let's count them. When we vent our anger at our children instead of trusting that God can give us better words to use, we make an alliance with the devil. When we hoard and keep our money instead of giving it away to the less fortunate and relying on God to take care of us, or when we fret and worry about everything we don't have instead of being grateful for what we do have, we make an alliance with the devil. When we drink away our sorrows with a few too many beers instead of relying on God to meet us in our pain, we make an alliance with the devil. When we give in to the sin of pornography instead of relying on God to help us learn true intimacy, true romance, true passion, we make an alliance with the devil. And when we choose to gossip about somebody instead of relying on God to uh, love them and speak well of them, we make an unholy alliance with the devil. So many of us are currently in an alliance with the devil one way or another, and it won't do anything for us except lead us to our own destruction. So if Judah's sin was making an unholy alliance with Egypt instead of trusting God for protection, that's a mistake each of us make every day. We all make all sorts of unholy alliances. My question for you then this morning is actually fairly simple. It's this. What's your Egypt? Who's your pharaoh? What's an unholy alliance that you've gotten yourself into? Are you a little too cozy with your favorite politician or political party? Are you placing way too much hope in the Republicans or the Democrats to provide for you what only God can? They will never make you truly happy or prosperous. Why do you think they will? Or is there a person that you have allied yourself with instead of trusting in God to provide for you? A friend, a girlfriend, a child, a parent, Who is it? Why have you made that person in your life your God? Why do you care so much about what they think of you as opposed to what God thinks of you? Or have you partnered with the devil in some sort of sinful behavior? Are you letting the devil lead you down the path of anger or lust or gossip or greed instead of trusting that relying on God and his righteousness is better for you? What's your Egypt? These are the allies that we fill our lives with, but these alliances will fail us. As they fail Judah, they will fail us. There is only one we can rely on, and you know who that is. Oh, that'd be Jesus. Jesus alone can save us from the coming wrath. You see, you see the, the thing about Judah, it's, it's hard to beat Judah up too much because they got something right here. They were scared. They were scared, and they had every right to be scared. They knew they were in trouble and that Assyria was coming. We are right to be scared too. Death is coming for us. Judgment is coming for us. We're all going to die. We're all going to be judged. We're all going to die like dogs, in fact. Say you will die like dogs. We will die like dogs. That's true. Oguabo was on something. 
We'll die like dogs. But politicians cannot save us from death and judgment. Other people cannot save us from death and judgment. The, the devil has no interest in saving us from death and judgment. Only Jesus can save us from the coming wrath. And that's my invitation to you this morning, is to cut ties with your allies and rely on the only ally who is truly reliable, who is Jesus Christ. And here's what's great about relying on Jesus Christ. It's easy. You don't even have to do much. As Isaiah writes in verse 15, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. That's what God wants you to understand this morning. In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. What he means is that we don't got to do a lot to be saved from death and judgment. We don't need to sign a treaty with Egypt or say 100 Hail Marys. We don't have to go to a membership class or clean ourselves up first or quit smoking or quit cussing. We just got to trust God. We got to relax in him. Because God already did the work. He came to earth as a man, died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty that we owe because of our sin. Our sin, our guilt was given to him. His righteousness was given to us. Now we are guilt-free, ready for eternity. Our strength as people, our strength as a church is not in our political power. Our salvation is not in our connectedness or our reputation or our social media impact. We do not trust in chariots or horses or men. Our salvation and strength is in Jesus Christ himself, what he did on the cross. We're eternally safe from all our enemies if we quietly rest and trust in him. Who needs the three amigos when the only amigo we need gave his life on the cross so that we could be saved from all the El Guapos We'll ever face in life. That's all you got for me? Just a little. That was well timed because I'm done, so let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for preaching the word to us through Isaiah. Several thousand years later, these words are still true. We're all scared in life, and we have every right to be. The El Guapos we face are terrifying. Loneliness, irrelevance, death, judgment. We are right to be scared. El Guapo is daunting. And in our panic, we go looking for allies who deceive us into thinking that they can do something for us when they can do nothing open our eyes to the powerlessness, the do-nothingness of all the allies we partner with, the people that we try to fill our loneliness with, the politicians we try to fill our powerlessness with, the sin we try to fill our boredom with. You're the only one who can see us through death and judgment and all the El Guapos we face. Help us rely on you and you alone. Thank you for the gift of your son. He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven and know we are forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that we could know that we have eternal life in him. That's all we need. We don't need the things we think we need. We don't need Egypt. We don't need the three amigos. You are the only amigo we need. We close our prayer time this morning, Father, by sharing together the words that have 
bound Christians together for centuries, words that remind us what we believe, who we are, words of the Apostles' Creed that we share together on the first Sunday of every month, words that will appear on the screen behind me for those who need them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.